0: Hi, I'm Chuck Quinley from the Thread Bible Podcast. The Bible gives just a few paragraphs to the creation of the solar system, but three chapters to the story of the great flood. Why? The answer is coming up, so stay tuned. Welcome to Thread, God's Word tying together all the pieces of your life through verse by verse study of the Bible. In season 4, we're exploring the bedrock of the entire Bible, Genesis 1 through 12. Season 4 of the Thread Bible podcast is brought to you by medialightonline.com. Well, we're in Genesis 8 and 9 today, and it's the end of the flood story. And this story really reveals so much about God's heart and what he's like as a person. And I'm I'm really excited about the message that's in today's passage because I think it is the reason that this, um, this episode gets so much time in Scripture, and that is because it, it starts a new way of God relating to humans, and it introduces the concept of covenant, and we'll see more about that later. Well, let's back up just a little bit and do a real quick recap. The Earth has gotten into the condition of—I don't know how many dystopian movies you've watched, from Hunger Games to—but some of them, for me, like Mad Max, um, and movies like that, where they get the world to its basest uh, possibility—that you know, you've got no no law, no government, no morals there's no family structure. It is just survival of the fittest, you know, humans as animals, and they are as filthy as animals, and they are as cruel as animals, and usually in a, in a good movie, they've got, you know, green teeth, and they're just nasty. There's everything about them would repel you, but, you know, to know that that's in humans, and that's what we can come to, and the world in Noah's day, that's you know, we had gone to the animal level, and even more than that, there was genetic uh, experiment going on. Genetic anomaly had taken place, and beings from another place had come to Earth, and they had mixed with humans and created these titans that are in almost every nation's mythology. And the story of the ancient ones who are bigger than humans, more powerful than humans. And that's the world of Genesis 6. It is a world uh, without morals, ethics, a world without God, a world that is filled. And when you fill something, there's no room for anything else. It is filled with violence. And as God looked at this world, he said, this world is ruined. It is not possible to recover this world. There's nothing I could do that would save it or fix it. The only thing I can do is hit a reset and wipe out everything that I have created. And so he did. But his eye fell on one man named Noah and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And Noah had a heart different. I don't know how it happened, but he had a heart different from those who were around him. And God told Noah about a new uh, a new creation, a new invention, something that he must make. And it was called an ark. And an ark is not a ship. An ark is a safe zone. It is a miniature Garden of Eden. It is a place where no one can hurt you. And he told Noah, go to the trees and take some trees. And just how, you know, in the beginning of our story, the trees are where the problem began it was the humans and their choices about the trees of God, and now the Lord tells Noah cut down some trees, one specific kind of tree, and the tree will save everyone. And the uh, he builds this thing; it holds all of life. It's huge, it takes a hundred years, and he builds this thing. He gets inside the great deep of the earth, ruptures. And we have the de-creation, and and God takes His hand off of entropy and off of those forces that try to destroy earth life every day, and He just lets it go, and He stops resisting it. And the deep rises back up, and the heavens open back up, and the earth is back to a water ball, and months go by, and at the end of the story... This ark is the only thing that has survived, and everyone in it. And it comes to rest on the top of the mountain of cursing. And Noah opens the door of the ark, the window, and he lets out a dove. And the dove uh, comes back with an olive branch, which is a symbol. You know, she's ready to build a nest. There's a chance for new life. And he opens the window, and everyone... You know, you got a dove and now you have a voice from heaven. And, you know, you're going to see this again in the New Testament in the uh, baptism of Jesus. And so Noah and his family, uh, eight people come out and they are the new humans, the new Adam to reestablish the new Garden of Eden and spread good life around the world. That's how the story has ended in uh Genesis eight nineteen. Now we turn a corner, uh, and we we talk about something a lot deeper. Uh, in Genesis eight twenty, it says, "And Noah built an altar to the Lord." And uh, Johannes Brenz notes Noah, having left the ark, does not proceed to build a tower, or a house, or to plow the fields, but to build an altar. Noah built an altar to Yahweh. This is the first time that this happens in scripture where someone builds an altar to the Lord and he builds this altar and he offers uh, certain animals that are considered clean for sacrifice and he makes burnt offerings ascend to heaven. Now, you know, it's it's a sad fact of a parent-child relationship that at Christmas time you actually have to give your children the money to buy you a present and but you're teaching them to be givers and you know that in their heart somewhere there's love for you and you want to empower this love so Yahweh has actually had to tell Noah before the ark was closed that he should gather some extra animals that could be a gift And so he's provided, Noah, and, you know, our relationship with God is always going to be like that. And that's one of the themes of today's lesson is the one-sided nature of the human relationship with the creator. And we'll get more into that as we go. But the love that the creator has for us. So the first thing we want to see, though, is the ministry of Noah to the Lord. He comes out of the ark, and instead of building himself a house and setting up his farm or trying to build a city, as they'll do later, uh, Noah comes to worship the Lord, and he gets his family with him, and they're kneeling before the Lord, and they're making burnt offerings unto the Lord, and they're thanking the Lord. And this action of Noah and his family, it affects Yahweh. Yahweh has an experience because of it. The scripture says, uh, Genesis 8, 21, and Yahweh smelled the sweet savor, a savor of rest. That's how it's, that's how it's said in the Hebrew, uh, a savor of rest. You have to get back into the circumstance that the world has come through. Um, the horror of the mess, the sacrifice of having to clean it up, the emotional impact of the flood uh, on the Creator because He's had to destroy You know, we don't have a picture. The God of the Bible, the, the picture is not of just a brain, this massive brain, um, or just a cloud, an unfit, or pure logic. We get a person. We get a person with emotion who loves some things and hates some things, and this personal God has had to destroy everything that was his dream, everything that he made. He had to watch all life die. He had to watch every living thing return their breath back to him, and I don't know what that was like on his on his side. I don't know the limits of God's ability to feel pain, but we know that he does feel pain because the the cause for the flood was that his heart was troubled at a decision he had to make. He postponed it, he avoided it, but he could avoid it no longer. Uh the earth had to be purged, and he's done it, and he watched all life die while Noah was safely tucked away inside the ark Yahweh was watching everything uh, as it was dying and this this sacrifice the this smell coming up to him it has an impact on him it's the smell of intercession it's the smell of prayer and you know this is if you if you read the book of revelation it is constantly connecting itself to the genesis story and it has an image there of a bowl of incense that is before the Lord, even this day, as you're listening to this, a bowl of incense that is rising with a, a sweet smell to the Lord, a smell of rest. And it is the smell of the prayers of his people. Prayer is an aroma to the Lord. It's a connection. And it says it, it gave him the experience of rest, because this intercession came with a message saying from Noah, I'm with you, Yahweh. I was loyal to you, and you were loyal to me, and we're all alive now after this year of death and disinfection, and thank you. And it allows Yahweh to finally rest, rest from his responsibility to purge and disinfect the earth when we lived in the Philippines, there was a big hospital down the road from us that started having mysterious illnesses in it, and then it it became a plague, and then people started dying in the hospital, and they were there, you know, from minor causes, and they would get infections that would go into their lungs and, and just kill them, and it was golden staff, and they tried to get rid of it, and they tried to you know, clean parts of the hospital and every, you know, sterilize things, and it didn't work. And finally, the only thing they could do was completely empty the hospital, take all the humans out of it, take all the equipment out of it, and completely sterilize that building from top to bottom, disinfect everything. And then they could put the, the equipment back in, disinfect the equipment, put it back in piece by piece. They had to do it right. And then they could set up the hospital and it could function again. And that's what's happened to the earth. And this ritual prayer of Noah brought rest to Yahweh. And it's amazing that we can minister to him like this. It let Yahweh know that his heartbreaking job was now over and he could turn back to re-blessing the earth and all of its creatures that he didn't have to play policeman and judge for now, that he could just enjoy watching things grow again. He could rejoice with the humans in the chance to start over. And this moment of smelling the sacrifice, it affects the Lord. And I, I want to read what it, what it says in chapter 8, verse 21. It says, And Yahweh smelled the sweet savor, a savor of rest. And Yahweh said in his heart, I will no more invoke woe upon the ground. I will no longer curse the ground because of man. And now note this next word. Um, I'm going to come back to it in a minute. I will no longer curse the ground because of man, even though or because. The imagining of man's heart is evil from his youth. Uh, let me go back over that, because this is a turning point in the relationship between God and man. Um, we can, there's a little word here, two-letter word, spelled K-I, and you can translate it in different ways, but in this passage, there are two possible translations, and the first of them is because. Uh, I will no longer curse the ground because of the human. Uh, I will no longer curse the ground because of the human, because... From their youth, their heart is raw. okay? So it either means that the human is so enslaved by the power of raw that's evil, that's darkness, that's destruction, it's uh, anti-creation, that humans are so bound by that, that by nature they're so subdued by sin that the earth should actually be pitied and not... Cursed because of humans and even humans, if Yahweh will punish man and his world for every human offense, he will have to flood the world over and over again so that 's the first possible way to take this little this little word because man is bound to evil, I cannot keep um, punishing the earth and judging the earth because i 've got to do something else, you know another Solution must be found because the problem is embedded in the heart of every human. Because. A second way to take this is for God to say, I am not going to punish the earth anymore due to human behavior, even though humans from their birth are focused on Ra. Okay? That would mean something totally different. That would mean humans are capable of better. They are able. They have free will. They are able to focus on tov. They can focus on good and building and pro-God. But even though humans focus on Ra and are in love with Ra, even though they are like that from their birth. I had hoped for fellowship and equal flow of love and loyalty, but even though they are not going to give it back to me as a race, I will still find a way to walk with them without destroying them and the earth. We, we don't know which one of these ways we should take it. It could be both. Uh, you can ponder that and see how it feels to you. The big issue with creation... Was that God gave his life to humans? His breath, his spirit entered humans, and with it came his free will. And this was so important to him that Yahweh refused to make the world without it. It's the same gift he gave to the angelic host. But it is a dangerous freedom, it is a risky gift because with it is the freedom to choose to go against everything God is about. And the very reason this planet exists, and we already saw in Genesis 6, what can happen when the whole world joins in a conspiracy against God. I mean, this planet was down to one righteous man. So God just wiped the planet clean of their disease that was ruining everything. But here at the altar with the smoke ascending, we find God in a moment And in this moment, he commits himself to rebuild the human population of the world. Never again to destroy them all, no matter what. I'm going to rebuild their numbers, and I am never going to destroy them again, the whole race, no matter what, regardless. And in verse 22, he goes on to describe the the cycles of this planet. Earth will always have seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. He will not end the earth ever. He will not allow the end of the earth ever. So you can stop worrying about that meteor destroying the world because he has made a covenant. I am going to protect and preserve this planet even at the cost of heartbreak with disloyal humans, who I made in my image. And now he turns a page and he begins to relate to humans in an entirely different way. There was a covenant uh, of an understood covenant with Adam and Eve. He clearly gave them what they were to do, what, you know, it has it always in one sense been, his way of dealing with humans to express himself and to express what he what he wants from them but in this case he states it it's the first time he uses the word and he tells noah come i am going to make a covenant with you and the recreation of the world begins with a covenant yahweh moves now to relate to fallen mankind through formally stated promises, clear terms of relationship. Why is this important? Because the world, we need to all get this, the world is, this is going to help your marriage, the world is a moral universe. It is held together, the human world, life on earth, it is held together by the promises that we make. Some of these promises are just understood. Mothers are supposed to love their children. Others of these promises are stated like the marriage vow. And if you don't understand your marriage vow, it's this. I will bring my very best self to you. I will always be loyal to you. And I will never cheat on you sexually. I will never involve another person in my life. Those are three clear promises of the wedding vow. And I've stripped. When I do weddings, I make them just that clear. Uh, because that's the point. You could get rid of that whole hour-long ceremony and have a one-minute promise, because that's the only part of it that really matters. We're all there to serve as witnesses of that promise, and you're supposed to bring to that promise the very closest friends to your, to your life, to stand as, as witnesses that you made these promises. are clear. Now, why are promises so important? Well, happiness comes... From the keeping of your promises. And great pain is unleashed when we break any of these promises. Children are supposed to obey their parents. Uh, workers are supposed to give a good day's work. Employers are supposed to pay you and treat you like a human for your, when you work for them. There's, you know, There's all these things. Some of them are even written. They're called contracts. And as we fulfill our covenant with each other, there's happiness. Well, covenants date all the way back as long as there have been humans, and, and humans, especially organized humans. The um, ancient world covenants are between kings, and the one that, the, uh, that Moses and the children of Israel enter into is a vassal suzerain treaty. It's between a greater king and a lesser king. And in this passage, God relates to Noah and to humans as kings of the earth, and he establishes a new covenant, and he he will not break his part of this covenant. And based on this new covenant, Yahweh will begin again the earth project. He reclaims his vision of humans to be his partners in expanding life to fill all the earth. And Yahweh remains committed to even these imperfect humans. That's what he has decided in chapter 8, verse 22. I am committed to them, though they are imperfect. Either I am committed to them and to this planet because they are imperfect, uh, I will find another way to continue with them, or in spite of the fact that they are imperfect, I will still be committed to them and committed to the dream of making earth his home. He is going to to reclaim this planet and he's not going to wipe out all the humans in order to do it anymore he's going to reclaim this planet and he begins his next phase of the plan stay tuned So now we go into chapter 9, God begins the covenant. Chapter 9 is the covenant, down to verse 17. It says, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons. They heard him say this. This is a ceremony between them. He is repealing the curse on the earth, and he is blessing Restoring the earth to blessing. He's not going to curse the earth anymore. He blesses the earth. He blesses Noah. He blesses his sons through all of them. He is blessing their family and not just them. It goes on through creation. Later, he he outlines it. It's for you. And this is for all the descendants of Noah's family, which we all are. There's one human you know, race. We can have a big discussion on that. There is one race. It's the human race. That's why all races can share blood. All races can share organs. We are the human race. And God blesses Noah, and he says, this isn't just a blessing for you. It goes to your descendants, and it goes through you and your descendants to all forms of life on earth. He starts the covenant. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's always been God's dream. It's always been his his way of blessing all the life in the world. And, you know, he's back to using the language of Genesis uh, chapter one and two again. Okay. Uh, He makes a covenant. And in this covenant, he says basically four things. There's four parts of this covenant. The first one is Yahweh will remove his cursing and restore blessing on all creation as of this day, and he does that. He reestablishes humans as his authorities. They are to rule it after his image, and he appoints the human as the co-ruler on earth, and he, he says it, in the, it's the same concept, but he uses stronger language now. He says, fear and dread of you shall be on every beast. Fear and dread of you shall be upon every beast. Well, why is this necessary to say it that way? Well, think about how the original story begins. God places man in charge. The humans are immediately challenged by a beast, the supernatural beast, Nakash, the rebel serpent dragon who destroys the harmony between the humans and between the humans and their creator. And there are a lot of beasts in the Bible. There is the Nakash. There's the beast of sin. Remember that with Cain? The beast that wants to devour him, that's at the door of his house. David faces the beasts. He faces a lion and a bear, and he takes authority over them. And then David faces Goliath the beast. And then Daniel is in a den of beasts. And then in Mark, it says after Jesus' baptism, he was with the wild beast in the wilderness, and the angels ministered to him. And in the book of Revelation, we have this ongoing battle between uh, a human leader called the beast and the people of God and he kills the people of God and he purges the people of God. the beast. it's humans versus the beast. And so Yahweh returns to this and returns to this metaphor and he said he tells Noah and his family, you need to rise up against the beast in every form. You need to take charge of every form of life that challenges you. You know, it can't be like it was last time where Cain rolls over and murders his brother and and humans, you know, follow the words of a beast. It's got to be different now. You've got to strike fear. You've got to take authority. Image me. And don't let any beast rise up against you. Second thing, he establishes additional policy for human behaviors. One of them is humans are now free to be omnivores. And it's about being, it's the connection to the beast. And the beasts aren't just like lions. The beasts are all the animals in the world, every other form of life. He says it is now part of your dominion to take animal life for your nourishment. Uh, It's a similar situation to the scene at the tree because that was about what humans can eat. They were standing in front of two trees. God gave man something good to eat that would keep him alive. As long as he ate it, he would live forever. And then he places one rule. You know, you can't have that other tree because it will damage you. Well, this time it's about eating blood. He says again, here's meat. You can you can have meat. You can have animal protein. You can use the animal kingdom to nourish your body. However, you may not take their blood blood is a symbol of life and this life must be honored even in taking animals for food uh, i like how uh, american indians used to have a little ceremony you know after they had taken an animal's life for food they'd speak a few words to that animal and thank it for its life uh, i th- i think that's so appropriate beno jacob noted that eating blood may express a secret joy in killing And be an education for murder. And so God says you're not to be a beast. When you kill an animal and take its life, it's something to be honored. You don't do it the way a beast does it. You do it the way a human does it. And speaking of blood, then he makes another policy about blood and life. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 4. For your blood, for the blood of your lives. And that word life is nefesh. uh, Your life is in the Bible a human life, a a natural, physical life. That's what that word means, uh, not the metaphorical. I'm really having life. It's like it's your human chance to live in a physical world. He says, for the blood of your nefesh, blood of your lives, will I seek satisfaction, whether it comes from a beast or a man, acting like a beast, from a man's hand, and for his brother's nefesh, his brother's life will I seek the life of a man. Whoever pours out the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be spilled, for in the image of God made he man. So, from now on, humans like Cain will not be forgiven when they kill other humans, especially when they kill their own brothers. There's going to be a strictness, a hardness is necessary because the this, this softness, the gentleness. We've seen what happens now when humans are not restrained, when the world has no order, has no lines. And, uh, and so God reaffirms. He reaffirms two things. On the one hand, that humans are something animal-like in the way they are, a fallen human state. Man is a predator. But he insists that they be a predator in the image of God. You don't kill for fun. You don't kill for sport. You kill to eat. You show respect for the animals. You pour their blood on the earth as unto the Lord. And then on the other hand, he points to man's dignity and the higher nature of a human as being made in God's image. And he says, anyone who takes the life of a human, they have just forfeited their own life. And these two new laws acknowledge both realities that are just the truth about a human after the fall. We're a beast, but we are still in the image of God. And we're going to have to fight our own beastly nature. That's Paul, Romans 7. You know, this thing, Paul says, there's a thing in me, and every time I want to do right, this thing fights me. It's the beast, and it's fighting me. And humans have to be humans and not beasts. Rise up above that. So now the Lord calls Noah and his sons for a ceremony, and he speaks that little word again, lo. Come get on my side. Come join me on my side and see what I see. Lo. Lo, I, even I. See, those are the same words the Lord has said about the death of all the animals. He said, I, even I, am bringing death on the earth. And now he says, Lo, I, even I. I'm establishing my covenant with you, with all humans, and with all nefesh that is with you, with all the, the living, the, all the animated life that is with you, flying things, cattle, beasts of the earth, everything that came out of the ark. Well, what's our part? These are all promises from God. What is our part in this covenant and humans and animals? have one clear responsibility, and that is multiply, grow, and spread out the good life across the earth. He calls it swarming. Verse 7, think of a swarm of bees. I mean, it's a collective. They're acting as a big group, and they are on the move. And he says, it's, a, it's kind of a funny word to use for the, the expansion of humans. He says, you, Be fruitful, multiply, swarm on the earth and multiply on it. And I think we need to, we need to, I wouldn't have had to say this in any other generation, but human multiplication is a good thing. God sees baby humans. God sees the spreading of the human population as a blessed thing, a good thing. You know, when an animal starts to go extinct, we, we get concerned about it. But there are whole nations of the world where humans are going extinct. There are countries in Europe. Uh, Japan, I think, is also in negative. Like, you know, nice word is negative population growth. It means extinction has begun for those people. Human multiplication is a good thing. Animal multiplication is a good thing. It's a blessed thing. And in our next book of the Bible, Exodus, we're going to meet a character, the Pharaoh of Egypt, and he's going to reveal the darkness of his heart by looking at the population growth of Abraham's family and calling this good thing evil. And then he's going to institute a brutal form of birth control that uses infanticide at birth and in doing so he is going to set himself against the creator and against the creator's command to humans to be fruitful and against the covenant that God is making right now to protect the family of Noah and Noah's descendant Abraham and so you know we don't need to stand against you know as much as It makes common sense to use birth control. You can't find birth control as a Christian duty in the Bible. You'll find the opposite. Childbearing, the growth of the human race, that is God's dream on the earth. Uh, And so finally now, uh, God makes another promise, and here's his final promise in the covenant. Never again shall all flesh be cut off. By the waters of a flood. Never again shall there be a flood to ruin the earth. And in this case, God's promise is not dependent. Sometimes He'll make a promise that depends on the humans to fulfill their side. In this covenant, it is not set up like that. God's going to keep His promise. I am not going to destroy the earth again, um, regardless of what humans do. I will not just scorch. You know, I'm not going to flood this planet, I'm not going to destroy this planet. I think we have to take a closer look at the New Testament scriptures about the scorching of the earth. Uh, Because it's if you read this passage carefully, you see a movement in the heart of God against destroying all life on the planet. That is something he commits not to do. And he's not a God that says You know, oh, I promise not to flood you. I'll just burn you. You know, it's not like that. He's not like that as a person. And the heart that's in this covenant is the pain of having destroyed the earth. Uh, There may, anyway, I don't want to get into the whole burning. A lot of times when you see the word burning in the New Testament used, it's burning up what is unrighteous more than burning the forest burning the animals burning all the humans you know it's a purging John is john is looking at Jesus saying the fire has already started and you know certainly the world was not literally on on fire and Jesus wasn't here to burn down all the forests of the world and kill the planet it's another kind of fire you know he it's holy ghost fire you see that in the Book of Acts, there's a new kind of fire. Anyway, we can get into that one at another time. The sign of the covenant. God has made a promise, He's going to keep it. And the thing about covenants is you need to circle around to your covenant. That's why we celebrate anniversaries and things like this. We want to remember the covenant that we made. It's not just that an anniversary is, oh, those were the good days when we got together. You know, the anniversary is the time to go back over your covenant and say, what did we promise each other? Are we fulfilling our promises? Am I loyal to you more than anybody? Have have I failed you in any of these ways? Am I bringing you my best self? Am I sacrificing for you? Have I put you above everybody? You know, we need to revisit our covenants, and that ought to be what the 4th of July is in America, the covenant between the people and their government And the, anyway, covenants, they need to be revisited because we, we do drift. We drift away from them. And so God puts, this is such a significant moment in his own life and in his life with humans that he puts a sign in nature and he creates the rainbow. With Abraham, it will be the sign of circumcision. But it's a physical sign of the covenant that as you circle through life, you you run into these covenant reminders like a wedding ring on your hand over and over again. It's the sign of your covenant. And the Lord says, every time I see that, I will remember again the covenant that I've made with you. So God enters into a covenant with man. We get a fresh start. God, the promise maker, is the promise keeper And our relationship with him, he goes ahead and states it openly. It's never going to be equal. It's always going to need the creator to hold it up and keep the covenant active. Even when we break our side of it, even when we fail him, he still holds the covenant together because he will not let it go. He is for all of us, our father and our friend. And he is the one who loves us despite our weaknesses. He knows from birth how we are drawn toward raw, toward evil. it, it, uh, it entices us. It, uh, we are curious about it. We are so drawn to the darkness more than the light. and he sees that in us. And he's working on a transformation of the human that will not wipe out their free will he has a plan to build this covenant and build this relationship and continue on with his dream of earth as a place where heaven and earth overlap he's going to do it and that's what the rest of the bible takes us to but it starts with this beautiful moment between noah and his maker and if you've never made an altar to the lord Why don't you find a place, make a closet, a place outside under a tree, make you some place that is your meeting place to the Lord and your place where you meet and speak with Him as your Father and your friend. All right. Well, my friend, expect God to use you because you are the light of the world.